The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett, and welcome to another Super Soraway edition of Media Talk from The Guardian. This week, we've got an exclusive interview with the new chairman of the Press Complaints Commission. We also talked to Ben Cooper, the new, well, newish controller of Radio 1, about Chris Moyles and his plans to take the nation's favourite younger. Plus, it's Rajar time again, so zip up your anoraks for the latest radio listening figures. If that sounds like your type of show, then plump up a cushion. If not, perhaps you'd like to investigate other shows from the Guardian stable. Football Weekly is particularly good this week, I hear. Anyway, to the Press Complaints Commission. The much-maligned industry regulator ushered in a new chairman last November, and this week Lord Hunt, or to give him his proper name, David James Fletcher Hunt, Baron Hunt of Wirral, PCMBE, gave his evidence to the Leveson Inquiry. The Tory grandee set out his recommendations for a totally new regulatory body. The Guardian's head of media and technology, Dan Sabber, was keen to grill him further about that and the PCC's relationship with the ongoing Leveson Inquiry. So keen, in fact, that he insisted on following Lord Hunt into the back of a taxi for this exclusive interview. I see it that we are now responding positively to the call that Lord Justice Leveson made in the pre-inquiry seminars that the press should consider the best way forward and come um, to him with proposals as to the sort of structure that could now be created to take the place of what has been called a regulator but really has no regulatory powers, namely the Press Complaints Commission. But you've talked about sort of a a revamped model that looks not just at sort of mediation but also standards. I mean, doesn't that leave Lord Leveson's task a bit moot? No, because uh, I envisage a new regulator of the press which entrenches independent self-regulation having three columns, standards and compliance, mediation and complaints and the third arm which could provide a better fora uh, for uh, determining claims whether it's for defamation, libel or slander, privacy or just a breach of the code which has caused damage. And that third column is something on which I believe Lord Justice Leveson could give some really wise advice about how to marry what has hitherto been a judicial function with perhaps an alternative, a simpler, easier method for people of modest means to put their complaint before another body. Are you confident you can get Richard Desmond in the club? You told uh, Lord Justice Leveson, I think, that you thought you had. I mean, his people said they were, they found your work encouraging and that they were in touch with you, which, didn't sound, which sounded like a maybe, definitely maybe, which is better than most people. But is that really good enough? Can you absolutely get everybody to join? Well, I can't get everybody to join something which isn't yet set out in the terms of a contract. But please don't underestimate the unity of the industry at this critical juncture. I've approached everyone. They are all willing to sign up to the basic architecture that I brought forward. There's been a very positive response and I believe a genuine appetite for reform. So you think you've got Richard Desmond in? Yes, he's certainly prepared to consider the way in which 
this new body should be set up, and then to reach a decision about whether he personally wants his company, Northern and Shell, to sign up to it. And I'm getting the same reaction from all the other proprietors. The important thing is that we should be united at this key moment. Are you prepared to be tough? I mean, we, want to, we need to sort of know a bit what sort of man are you. You know, the next time some awful tragedy happens and there's another family like the McCanns, and suddenly the press coverage is going in a, in, a, in a difficult direction. What will you do? Well, you're quite right. What I have to do is to judge the competence of this new structure to, um, in a way that will ensure that nothing like some of those terrible cases we've seen can ever be allowed to happen again. You can never uh, put up a complete answer to all problems, but at least we can make a great deal of progress judging by the lessons we have to learn from the past and ensure they're taken on board so far as the future is concerned. What does that mean in practice, though? Are you going to be ringing up editors and saying, don't do this, and maybe even giving interviews to the Today programme? I mean, that's what Richard Desmond disliked, I think, when Christopher Mayer criticised his organisation. But are you willing to be robust when you believe it to be necessary? Yes. And robust in public? Oh, yes. And I think everyone would expect that as long as we have a clearly defined code which, on, the, on which I believe we can build the present code, which I think sets out um, uh, the necessary uh, standards of conduct, professional standards and ethics, which should be adhered to. With that code, we have a clear message to everyone that they must abide by that code in all their dealings with the public, very much in the public interest. You put a lot of weight, I think, on proprietors sort of being compliant and being receptive. Uh, no doubt you've gone and met with, with, with several, but these are an interesting mix of people, and uh, you know, some of them are based overseas, some in tax havens and so on and so forth. Do you think you can keep these folks in line and and what about you know how do you deal with future owners who may not be so respectful of the system that you've worked so hard to build up what we need to do is to set up the new body with sufficient powers to deal with all foreseeable situations and to bind in the present ownership uh, to uh, supporting that new body now of course You're quite right, there may be changes of ownership, changes of attitude, but provided you have a sensible commercial contract, that can more than cover every eventuality. That will be certainly my objective. And lastly, are you the man for the job? In other words, uh, you're the chairman of the PCC now. Do you envisage uh, appointing yourself or being appointed to the chairman of the successor body? Is that a sort of absolutely sort of, a, you know, do you need to be the man to lead the reform through this stage? No, I've been asked to set up the, uh, the structure for the new body. Um, implicit in this is the notion of independence. And obviously I would want to put myself forward, but I've learnt in my 35 years in Parliament you can never take anything for granted. What I want to show is a willingness to set up the right structure as to the people who will take it forward. I must make sure that there is a proper independent system of appointing those people.
And in true cheetah style, I said lastly, and I sort of, you know, like a true journalist, I had one other question on my sleeve. I should have mentioned it. You were very averse to statutory, uh, any kind of statutory regulation in your talk at Leveson, and in particular, you seemed to worry that there wasn't, uh, Parliament didn't necessarily have a settled view that it believed in the freedom of the press. Could you just expand on that? Because you, 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 you know, you seem to be saying that we should fear giving Parliament the opportunity to legislate too broadly about press reform. Well, certainly, I've been in Parliament long enough to know that there are conflicting views on the way in which the press should deal with particularly opinion and bias. And uh, the partiality of the press has been a subject of much debate. What I don't want to do is to open the Pandora's box of Parliament. As I tried to explain to Lord Justice Leveson, the road to parliamentary hell is paved with good intentions. So you may set off in the right direction, but you never know where you'll end up. And I just don't see the point of going through all that rigmarole when the opportunity to set up the new flexible structure is there within our grasp. Let's get on with it. Dan Sabber there, speaking to Lord Hunt in the back of a cab. Who paid the fare? Well, in this age of transparency, we will doubtless find out soon. Anyway, from the press to the wireless. It's been three months since Ben Cooper was appointed as successor to Andy Parfitt as controller of Radio 1. Not time enough for him to fully stamp his authority on the role, but certainly time enough to face a grilling from me and my microphone. I met Ben on the seventh floor of the new broadcasting house, which will eventually be home to Radio 1, but is currently occupied by a few hairy-ass chaps in hard hats. And no, I'm not talking about Chris Miles and Comedy Dave. I went armed with a few questions from various industry bigwigs, but started off with one of my own, about Moyles and his future under the station's new controller. Well, Chris is an amazing broadcaster. His uh, audience has just gone up uh, in the latest Rajar figures, so he's uh, fine where he is for now. So this is from Andy Roberts of uh, KISS, who asks, according to Rajar, the average age of listeners to Radio 1 is currently 35. What plans can you tell us of that will help take Radio 1 younger? Well, average age is a mathematical uh, delight for people. You can either say it's 32, 30 or 18, depending on which sort of stance you take. 18 is the number that uh, is the the highest amount of people of one age uh, that listen to Radio 1. Then you've got 30 uh, in terms of uh, if you lined everyone up and took the middle person. And then if you want to take everyone who listens and then divide it, then that's 32. So those are the three figures that we're dealing with. Average age is an issue uh, that the Trust have asked me to look at, and they've been encouraged by the plans that I've come out with. There are some things that are in my control, so things like um, editorial content, uh, the schedule, and the playlist. Uh, And then there are things that are beyond my control in terms of things like uh, changes to society, so things like trendy adults, people who are still interested in new music even though they're in their um, late 30s or in their early 40s and still want to know what the latest uh, genre of music coming through is going to be. So there are things that are in my control, there are things that aren't, but I'm very much uh, of the mindset that you know I have been tasked as controller to reduce the average age and that's what I'm going to try and do in the next couple of years. This is from Matt Deegan of Folder Media. It says Radio 1's always been good about giving one-off shows to try new people out. Could there be room to be more aggressive with that, giving more new talent? pilot shows especially um, outside of specialist shows perhaps in a regular pilot slot yeah well we've just uh we're going through the process of the walk at the moment so the window of creative competition um and i'm very uh very heartened by the amount of new ideas that are coming through about the way to deal with some of the programs that we've suggested 
that are up for grabs with certain presenters. But the one programme that I'm really delighted that's got the most interest is the one where we've said it's an open canvas. Saturday night, um, you know, on Radio 1 and 1 Extra, it's, it's there for you to make up what you want uh, and pitch to us. And that has been, uh, you know, a lot of interest in that. So I think, you know, probably one of the, the you know, the, the ideas uh, with that programme is that there's a lot of suggestions of new talent that could come through onto the schedule. On a similar note, Trevor Dan, formerly of this parish, says that the latest round of independent commissions are moving in the right direction, but they represent less than 2% of the network's content budget and some are still available to in-house producers and all the slots are concentrated at the margins of the output. Do you have any plans to extend opportunities for the independent production sector? I think that uh, figure is really quite unjust. Um, They've taken the whole budget for Radio 1 and 1 Extra um, and divided it up by the number of shows to reach that percentage and I think that's really quite uh, unfair to do that. Uh, Trevor should know uh, he's run radio, parts of Radio 1, you know, it is not parity certain shows do not get the same money as other shows and plus there are certain costs that are beyond your control, so things like uh, transmitters or um, certain costs that are fixed so I think that 2% is is really quite unfair. I think the the WOC, you know, we've put out... um, We've got 10% that is definitely going out of house and then 10% that is going to be competed for. I think that is great and it's a great opportunity for us to work with new people uh, and I'm looking forward to that uh, new relationship with new people. What figure would you put on the, um, just follow up question, what figure would you, would you put on the amount of um, perhaps on-air programming or, or content that's produced by independent companies? So at the moment we have, I think it's 11% that's made by out of house um, and uh, obviously going forward we're going to go through the WOC process and we'll have to see what that percentage is uh, come April. Okay, final question comes from Jamie East, um, a.k.a. Mr Holy Moly, who says, how does Ben feel about radio now following leads and trends the public have discovered for themselves rather than acting as the nation's tastemakers? That's what he thinks, as was the case for many years. Has the power balance shifted and how much does it affect your output? I heard a great quote uh, the other day, which is, the deer have now got guns, which I think uh, refers to the, uh, the power of the consumer. Um, you know, radio is, uh, by its very nature, something where you sit behind a microphone and you talk to people. And I think what we need to do as an industry is very much have more of a two-way dialogue with our audience whether that be on Facebook or Twitter uh, or whether it be um, just actually going out and meeting them more. And I think uh, that's going to be the trend going forward is about how do you get that sense of community and not just broadcasting at people but um, helping maybe people broadcast on your platform. We're sticking with the radio for our final item and it's time once again to talk radars. The latest set of quarterly listening figures were released this week. And I was earlier joined by Paul Robinson, media consultant, friend of the pod, and a former managing editor at Radio 1, to help me crunch the numbers. I started by asking him about Six Music, which has just recorded its biggest ever audience. 1.5 million listeners is a remarkable number. It's a record. No station's ever got to that number on digital only. And um, I think it's a testimony, A, to the fact there's obviously high awareness now. But it is a very good station. It's a station that's very well-themed. It's got presenters who care about the music. It's got a great music story. 
um, you know, it feels like a real, you know, modern radio station, and it's been rewarded with 1.5 million listeners. I think it can keep on growing. You know, I think that yeah, how far uh, can it go? You can get to 1.5. It can get it beyond two probably in the next maybe 12 to 18 months. It's gone more mainstream. Uh, is there a danger, as it does that, it's, that it sort of moves away from its reason for being in the first place? It's got to be careful, yeah. I mean, you know, XFM sort of lost the plot doing this. You know, it, it, XFM had this sort of coolness about it, and, and Six Music's got a certain coolness about it. Um, it can do, um, you know, a bit to uh, be mainstream at certain times of the day, but I think it's still got to have that sort of element of surprise. It does contrast well with the other BBC networks and obviously with commercial radio, so it's still got a unique place in the market, but it's got to watch that. Yeah, I mean, in the pursuit of audience, it's got to be careful not to lose its reason for existing. Now, we mentioned Six Music did very well, but uh, another BBC station, BBC Radio 5 Live, lost the thick end of a million listeners year on year, partly, no doubt, because it was the ashes this time in 2010. But also, Paul, how much do you think it is to do with the station's move to Salford? I don't think it is to do with Salford, to be honest. I mean, if, you, if you're honest about how Five Live sounds now compared to when it was entirely from London, I don't think there's substantial difference in editorial. Um, I think this is almost certainly down to the, the ashes. That was an exceptional number um, a year ago. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, Five Live is probably pretty much in reasonable waters. It's above six million, which is where it needs to be. It's obviously also basking happily in the uh, views of the BBC Trust yesterday, which, you know, praised it for its strength of journalism and breaking news. So, no, I think Five Live is fine. I mean, another book will tell, but I, I don't think this is a decline in Five Live. I think it really is a year on year comparison that's a tough one for them. But it was a good quarter for Five Live's commercial rival TalkSport, which, of course, has more live Premier League football now, some of which, which used to be on Five Live. Yeah, good, good, good figure for TalkSport. I mean, 3.2 million, you know, it's got roughly half the reach of uh, Radio Five Live. I mean, TalkSport's doing uh, very well. Um, clearly, you know, for TalkSport, the issue now is how can they do better? Uh, and so for them, the issue's got to be the continued issue with the BBC over sports rights, and in particular, the Premier League football. But 3.2 million, great result for TalkSport. And going behind the figures, Paul, there's been a change in the way that Ray Giles compiled the data this time around. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the, one of the things about Rajar is that, um, ironically, although commercial radio has less than half of the total UK listening, it actually pays more than half of the total bill for Rajar. And the reason for that is it goes back to the days when there was a desire to get a common currency for uh, audience measurement, um, replacing what was JICRA and the BBC Daily Survey. So the net of that was commercial radio ended up footing more of the bill because it uses Rajar not only for audience measurement for uh, programming purposes, but also for sales purposes. So um, commercial radio obviously has had you know, a tough uh, year or so um, advertising-wise, so it's been looking to make savings. Uh, savings were made, and this time round, Radio has less diaries in the field. So this is um, interesting in view of the fact there appears to be quite a lot of volatility. Um, commercial radio has lost audience, as has the BBC, but commercial radio has lost more. But we've seen some very sort of violent swings in a couple of stations. I mean, Heart in London, for example, has lost 25% of its total listening. Um, and Smooth Radio in London has lost 40% of its total listening. Now, you know, there may be movements down on those stations, but I'm not sure I believe that the uh, fall is quite as drastic as that. So I think there's probably uh, a little bit of um, you know, uncertainty about these numbers in terms of the, the new diary method. And we'll have to wait for another course to see whether those bounce back. But, you know, clearly 25% drop or a 40% drop in hours for a commercial station has a very serious impact on its ability to sell advertising.
Okay, well, that's it for this week. A show very much of three halves. There's more on the PCC, Leveson, and the Rajars over on mediaguardian.co.uk. And you can read my full interview with Mr. Cooper, that's Mr. Ben Cooper, controller of Radio 1, in Media Guardian on Monday. I'm John Plunkett, and Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.